Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we explore the life of iconic 20th century fiction writer Ernest Hemingway. Throughout his life, Hemingway cultivated an image of hypermasculinity. He was a heavy drinker, a big game hunter, a deep-sea fisher, and a war correspondent. He was present at some of the most significant conflicts of the 20th century, and they influenced his work. But the larger-than-life writer also had a softer side. To help us get to know Hemingway, we're joined by special guest writer Mary V. Dearborn. Mary's the author of Ernest Hemingway, A Biography. It's late afternoon in Pamplona, Spain, in the 1920s. The stadium is packed, and the matador stands in the ring dressed in an ornate costume. It's hot, and above them the sun is blazing. Sun is the third player in this contest, which isn't really a contest. There are loud cheers as the bull is led into the ring. Then there's a hush, and the author in the crowd watches the matador's footwork, the movement of his arms as he flicks his cape, his body language, the deep concentration on his face as the bull begins to approach. Ernest Hemingway knows that the odds are in favour of the bullfighter, while death is inevitable for the bull. On the other hand, if the matador moves at the wrong time, out of fear or overconfidence, he could be badly injured. It's an intricate dance, requiring courage and skill, and he watches it unfold, fascinated. All his life, Ernest Hemingway is intrigued by other cultures. He travels widely and incorporates them into his work. But he's born to a Midwestern middle-class family in Oak Park, just outside Chicago, in 1899. His father, Ed, is the local doctor, a quiet but emotional man who loves the great outdoors. His mother, Grace, is a music teacher. She's strong-willed and charismatic, and she could be described as a bit domineering. The dysfunction in the family has a lasting effect on Ernest, who's very ambivalent about Grace in his later years. Our guest, Mary Dearborn, tells us a bit about the Hemingway family. His parents were really interesting and really influential. His um, his mother had prepared for an opera career, a really real opera career. She came to New York for a year and you know, was really trying it. and But she'd met Ed Hemingway back then. And he was saying, just come back here and marry me. And she had an experience in Mad- Madison Square Garden where she did play a role. And she she couldn't, uh, the lights bothered her so much. Anyways, for whatever reason, she went back and married Ed, Ed Hemingway, who was a doctor, you know, a local doctor. And she started teaching, giving music lessons. and. It was well known um, around town that she made more money per month than did her husband, the doctor. So Hemingway, after um, 
his father's death and he tried to set it up so that his father was really like emasculated by his wife. But it really, that doesn't seem to have been true. He kind of held his own. And like they had a servant or two, but Ed Hemingway, there were things he liked, like doing the laundry and baking cakes. I mean, he had a whole bunch of things he cooked and, you know, whatever. But Hemingway was very, his mother had a huge charisma. Just, you know, when she walked in a room, you knew it. And that, he had that too, you know. And his father did, his father was, he was depressed. I think looking back, you can say he had bipolar disorder just as his son did. But, and, you know, he did kill himself as it turned out when Ernest was 30. And um, with a gun, and he had been in a terrible depression. He'd learned that he had, he was he had diabetes, and they didn't have insulin then. And he was a doctor, and he knew what that you know came with it, and so forth. So big big influence. So um, it was oh I'm sorry Hemingway's line was that my mother drove my father to suicide. With with hindsight, I guess, you know, he thought that was true. At high school, Ernest becomes a good sportsman. He also excels in English and edits the school newspaper. Although he does some fiction writing as a teen, he's fascinated by the top sports reporters of the time and emulates their style. On leaving home in 1917, he wants to enlist in the army, keen to do his bit in World War I. But since America hasn't officially joined the war yet, he ends up joining the Red Cross and delivering supplies to troops. He falls in love for the first time with a nurse nearly 10 years older than him. The relationship doesn't last, but she will later inspire his novel A Farewell to Arms. Mary Dearborn discusses Hemingway's experiences in World War I. So the only way that he could go was to join um, the Red Cross and specifically an ambulance crew. But he did not drive an ambulance, which a lot of a lot of people think he did. What he did was he delivered cigarettes and chocolate to the guys on the front lines. But he was therefore on the front lines, even if he didn't have, he didn't have a weapon. It was even that more, much more brave. But anyway, he, he um, was on the front lines and he got hit by mortar and then a machine gun. Mostly the mortar um, was the worst injury. And he got a couple of some machine gun bullets in his knee. It was a big influence on him. And he actually, and, and not in a bad way. I think when you or come so close to death at that age, that becomes the defining moment. And he has one of the best descriptions of dying that I've read, which is he said it was as if a, um, a handkerchief was being lifted out of my head and then it came back, you know, or then I woke up. So that, anyway, so it was a big influence on him. And he also fell in love with a Red Cross Norton nurse and it ended badly so he he thought he was a real man of the you know man of the world when he got done with world war one and certainly that was a lot of growing up after the war ernest briefly returns home 
and works for newspapers in Toronto and then Chicago, where he meets his first wife. But he can't settle down. In the aftermath of World War I, economic prosperity is rising and the Roaring Twenties are hitting Europe. For many cultured Americans, Paris becomes a kind of mecca, a place where they can live cheaply and develop their craft and mingle with other artists and thinkers. In 1921, Ernest and his newly wed wife, Hadley, move into a flat in the city and Ernest starts writing full-time, using a tiny garret around the corner as his studio. Ever the dramatist, he tells tall stories about their poverty, such as catching pigeons from the public gardens to eat. Hadley has a trust fund, so there's little real fear for the future, but he relishes the sense of freedom he has as a bohemian. After all, he's handsome, charismatic, and incredibly talented. Inevitably, he becomes the golden boy of American literature. Mary Dearborn tells us now about his first fiction works. He was, almost everything that came out of his pen was golden. And he just, I don't know how talent works, whether it just descends on you at a certain point. Um, Looking back, I think he was like a near manic. I mean, he was writing like, he could be writing like three of his best stories in six weeks. You know, they're just, and the, the whole thing was, they were very simple. I mean, most people know that Hemingway, his sentences are short and direct and vivid, you know, not full of lots of abstractions. And they, you know, changed the way that people looked at literature and changed the way people wrote, though it's very hard to follow Hemingway, as a lot of writers have found out. But and and the sort of knowledge of human psychology that that is revealed in these stories is just I you wouldn't think he he'd have be that sensitive to that. But and I don't know if he was, but it just sort of, you know, descended on him and he could do no wrong. And it didn't hurt that he was like absolutely gorgeous during the Paris years. I mean, he was six feet something and dark haired and soulful looking and just, and could not be more charming. And he has this wife, Hadley, who's just beautiful as well. And Hadley's musical and they have a little boy and Gertrude Stein is the boy's grandmother. I mean, it was idyllic. It was Paris in the twenties. That's, he started that, you know? So um, he was really on a roll, and he could do no wrong. And his his first book was um, really short. It was a collection of sort of sketches and poems, 10 stories and 10 poems, and two stories, I think. But the story, they, all of it was immensely good. And he got a publishing contract, and then it was off to the races. In the 1920s, Hemingway publishes three books and three collections of short stories. It's during this time that Hemingway and Hadley first travel to Spain, and Hemingway goes back again and again to the Festival of San Fermin in Pamplona, fascinated by the spectacle of bullfighting. His non-fiction book, Death in the Afternoon, 
explores the tradition. In it, he writes that bullfighting isn't a sport, but a tragedy, which involves danger for the man and certain death for the animal. Nonetheless, something about it keeps pulling him in. Hemingway and Hadley are outgoing, and they're part of a group of sociable expatriates in Paris. Their marriage ends after Hadley discovers he's having an affair with one of her best friends, another American, Pauline Pfeiffer. In the 1930s, he returns to the US to raise a second family with Pauline. He's still intrigued by Spain, but he also spends time in other countries, including Kenya, where he becomes an enthusiastic big game hunter. His works The Snows of Kilimanjaro and The Green Hills of Africa are inspired by this experience. In 1937, he feels compelled to return to Europe and help after the Spanish Civil War breaks out. The Civil War era is perhaps peak Hemingway. He witnesses the conflict firsthand, and it inspires one of his most famous novels, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Mary Dearborn tells us about the war and Hemingway's enduring love affair with Spain. He did. He got enamored of the bullfight. Pure and simple. I mean, that's what all the going to Spain was about to run with the bulls. It was that he wanted to be a bullfighter and he, he loved seeing them. It was something about death, clearly, you know, and, and that he felt you were closest to death. Yeah, and you were, you know, you saw these, you saw the animals die, you saw the horses die, and you'd see the, the matador die as often as not. And something about that, he, and he found that terribly heroic, and he loved Spain. It's kind of as a result. He loved the food, he loved the language, he loved everything. He, he At that time, he was married to his second wife, and he converted to Catholicism, and Spain was Catholic. I mean, he... It was um, that became I remember that Dorothy Parker, the you know, the wit and uh, Gonquin round table writer said she was critical of Spain. And you don't you did not do that in front of Ernest. And he wrote the meanest poem about her that I don't even quote it. It was so mean and unfair. But it, it, Spain was it. And so when the Spanish Civil War came around in the late 30s, you know, he was going to go and defend Spain against the fascists. And it's the only time in his life he got involved in anything political. And he was there reporting on the war. And there's no question it was his finest hour. He really shone. He behaved the best, though he was wooing and whatever, his third wife while still married to the second. But the third one was Martha Gellhorn, and she's a beautiful Bond, and she's there in Madrid with him, and she's reporting the war, too. And it just kind of fulfills everyone, and mine, I think, my idea of what Hemingway, you know, he's in this wonderful romantic relationship with this woman who works, you know, who does. It was it was really his finest hour, and it, it unfortunately didn't. It didn't last, and and Franco won, and Spain went fascist. And well, he loved Spain. In short, today, at a time when the media is closely scrutinised for signs of bias, 
The idea of a wartime reporter outright taking sides in the conflict would raise some eyebrows. And even in Hemingway's time, people are also starting to question how reliable his style of reporting actually is. Mary tells us now about the controversy that surrounded Hemingway's status as a war journalist, and how his reporting seemed to spark a lifelong ambivalence about the truth. So a whole bunch of questions came up about journalistic ethics because they could report the war however they wanted. You know, we've learned a lot about this in, in the last five or six years, that, you know, if you report things one way, you play a role in shaping them. And, okay, so then what you said about the idea of what is true comes up for grabs, right? Because you can really say that one thing is true when it's not, that the other thing was True. And I think that confused him um, a lot because, you know, he was known for telling the truth. And he started saying that all the time. He started, he signed his letters truly. And he would say that, you know, John Vespasis is truly not a good reporter, truly this and truly that. And the whole, in the whole, Second half of his life, that came up for grabs, and he really stopped telling the truth. It's interesting that he started journalism, stopped doing journalism then, too, which is, of all the writing that we have, that is closest to the truth, or it should be, or whatever. It was an interesting moment for him in his writing. On their return from Spain, Hemingway and his new partner, Martha Gellhorn, marry, and she joins him in Cuba. He's incredibly productive in the late 30s and early 40s, and as he grows even more popular, he befriends musicians and film stars, including Marlena Dietrich. But his relationship with Martha doesn't last long. She has a flourishing career of her own as a foreign correspondent, and there's some professional rivalry between the pair. After World War II breaks out, Martha leaves home for long periods of time to cover the action, which causes a lot of resentment. In 1944, Hemingway also travels to Europe. He covers the Normandy landings, and this time he takes up arms, leading a village militia. This gets him into trouble with the American army, who believe he's breaking the Geneva Convention by trying to report on the war and lead resistance troops at the same time. He manages to avoid charges, saying he's only offering advice, and he remains in France until November 1944. He's present when de Gaulle liberates Paris, and he even wins a bronze star for his bravery as a war reporter. By the time the dust settles in 1946, his third marriage to Martha Gellhorn is over. But things are still looking positive for the author. He's come out of the war a hero. It's not long before he marries his fourth wife, Mary Welsh, another journalist, and takes her back to Cuba. As his 50th birthday approaches, things decline quickly. Ernest's demons, alcoholism and bipolar disorder, the disease that claimed his father, are catching up with him. 
our guest Mary, tells us how Hemingway changed as he got older and about The Old Man and the Sea, his comeback work. He, he turned 50 in 49. I th- I'm bad about numbers. Anyway, he um, and that was really traumatic. I mean, it is for a lot of people, but he basically went over into this like weird um, manic phase. And he wrote this book about Venice. And oh, it was so bad. It was it's called Across the River and Into the Trees. And he was in love with this in real life uh, with this um, 17-year-old Venetian countess. And Ernest really thought that he could get her because he always got women in the past and didn't deal with the fact that he was now 50, you know, and and Adriana's mother might not go for that. So it was it, everything was getting skewed. And then the, the book was awful and it got terrible reviews and he didn't did not acknowledge that but he wasn't writing well he was since world war ii he had tried to write this book that was a trilogy i mean tried to write a series of books with the air the earth and the sea and it wasn't going well and after his death people were able to carve out some novels from that stuff but one thing that came out of that was a little short story a novella Called the um, which was from the sea part, which is called the old man in the sea, and it, it came out of a story he was told, and it's very simple. And this Cuban um, fisherman goes out to catch marlin, and does, and catches the biggest one ever, whatever, and he ties it to his boat. This is, I'm sure you know this, and by the time he gets to port, it's the sharks have eaten all of it, and all there is is a skeleton. And I don't know where you went to, you know, uh, to high school, but you probably learned that this is everything in this story is a symbol. It Hemingway teaches really well, you know that it's a, and it's a good book that way. It's not only it's not only that it teaches well; it's also a good book. But it's not my favorite, and it, I think it's kind of too easy. He could do that with his left hand, but. But regardless, people wanted him to come back. They knew that he was like a wounded warrior sitting on the sidelines. And they people were so invested in him coming back. And then this thing appears. And it's published in Life magazine in two issues. At the same time, it's published as a book. You know, they're going with, you know, saturation plan. And it, it, it worked. You don't get the Nobel Prize for a specific book. But it came the year after this, and and it, people think he got it for that book, and that's pretty much the case. But it didn't it didn't help him. He was already in a downward spiral. His alcoholism caught up with him. He was taking all kinds of legal drugs. He was prescribed all kinds of different things, but a whole cocktail of them, which with the alcohol was like a really bad combination. And meanwhile, he's got this predisposition to bipolar disorder and and that's coming and going. And, you know, it's just all these things. He had this complicated life where people looked up to him and, you know, and his children, everything was 
was really coming to a head. And by the end of the 50s, it had really closed in. And he wasn't writing anymore. They had moved to Cuba, to the Finca Vigia, which outside of Havana, it was a wonderful place for him. But then Cuba, uh, Castro had come into power and you had to leave. Not only did you have to leave Cuba, but you had to give your house to the Cuban government because it was a communist you know, rule. So he had to leave. It must have felt like exile. And he ended up in Idaho in this building that, I mean, this house that to my mind looks like a bunker. It was poured concrete. You know, and there it is on the beautiful Idaho landscape. And he, he was just not doing well. Like somebody said that his biceps, which once a man could barely get their hands around, you could almost get them the same hands. You could almost get one around the biceps just barely. So that's like the way that I sort of understood his suicide was that his depression was not normal. His depression was psychotic. And, you know, he, he didn't see, he was paranoid. He thought the FBI was following him and he just started losing it. And one thing that brought it home for me is they brought him to the um, Mayo Clinic, which was not, anyway, which was not necessarily good for him. But on one of the trips there, he went in a small plane and they had to refuel in those days. And so they got out, you know, at the refueling. And he, when he was walking back to the plane, he tried to walk into the propeller. And that's sort of what I mean about psychotic depression. This was not going to, it was going to be really hard to keep him from killing himself. And his widow, Mary, knew that. And, you know, she locked his guns away, but she left the key out in on the kitchen shelf. And she got a lot of flack for that. But she said, hey, you can't keep a man from his possessions. And she couldn't keep him from it. It was going to happen. So it's very sad. Ernest Hemingway dies by his own hand in Sun Valley, Idaho, in 1962. The eulogy on his memorial is a poem he once wrote for a friend. Best of all, he loved the fall, the leaves yellow on cottonwoods, leaves floating on trout streams, and above the hills the high blue windless skies. Now he will be a part of them forever. Shortly after his death, something unexpected happens. A book about Paris in the 20s, A Movable Feast, is published posthumously. It's beautifully written and ranks among his best works. Towards the end of his life, he'd found notes from happier days and turned them into something publishable, working diligently through his deep depression. If Hemingway were alive today... Would he have lived longer? And could he have achieved more? Mary Dearborn gives us her thoughts. They would have monitored his med medications more and probably he would have had to address the alcoholism. They didn't have AA then. You know, it seems to be the only thing that really works. And I can't really picture him going, but things would be very different if he were alive now. And I think you know, one thing that happened with him, unfortunately, I see it happening 
you know, I have a couple, I've had a couple of crazy friends. And unfortunately, what everyone seems to do is they hope the other person is taking care of it. You know, like, I hope his wife knows that he's doing this. And, you know, the wife is saying, I hope his best friend is doing, it's really hard, mental illness, especially in somebody famous, you know, because they can, the whole culture can um, enable him. And that's a danger, I think. What would he have done with, um, for example, Donald Trump? I mean, that really is fun to contemplate, or even just the, um, just COVID. I mean, I'd love to hear his responses. Ernest Hemingway was never an easy person. Aside from his treatment of his wives, he was also famously irascible, and he fell out with many of his literary friends. At his peak, he was surrounded by admirers, but at the end of his life, he was isolated, alone with his long-suffering fourth wife. In many ways, the tough, prickly, hypermasculine image he's famous for was real, but he's more complex than people think. Among his quirks, he loved animals, and once adopted and bred a six-toed cat, dozens of descendants of which still live on his property in Key West. In fact, cats with this mutation are now known as Hemingway cats. Some of his novels also play with the idea of gender and gender roles, and one of his own children struggled with gender identity, eventually transitioning and becoming a woman. If Hemingway were alive today, Mary Dearborn thinks the writer would have been intrigued by the current debate around gender. She also thinks the macho image of Hemingway, which has been romanticised so much, might have done more harm than good. Hemingway is macho. Does anybody good? Any good? You know, it doesn't give these guys around, guys... (laughs) Think that Hemingway gives them a license, gives them a license to go run with the bills in Pamplona and, you know, pick up women by the arm on their run through the streets. I mean, and then for him, it doesn't help either. So, you know, I, the phrase toxic masculinity is new, but I'm afraid that it, and it's too much of a cliche, but something of that applies to him, I think. And it didn't, it didn't do his wives any good, that's for sure. So what is Ernest Hemingway's legacy to literature today? As a person, he certainly wasn't perfect. But he expanded the horizons of his readers and brought them his own version of travel, adventure, romance, excitement and heroism. And as society changes and evolves, despite the occasional attempt to cancel him, Ernest Hemingway is still an enduring presence. Mary Dearborn thinks his books will withstand the test of time, and he still has something valuable to offer. You know, I think he's an unbelievably good writer. And I I like the short stories best, and I think he's just a master of the short story. And But I think The Sun Also Rises, that's his first real novel. That's my favourite. But he goes on, For Whom the Bell Tolls is a novel about the Spanish Civil War 
And as I said, he was at his best then, right? So this is like this novel that's outwardly his best because he sat down to write a bestseller and he knew just how to do it. You know, and he, so he wrote this thing that I think is kind of facile, but people loved it. And then um, A Movable Feast, I really love that book though. Most of that book is, distorts the truth and and tells a lot of lies. I think he's, I think he remains with us and I don't think that's going away. You know, the number of writers who claim him as an influence and legitimately, I think, where you can see the, the influence in their writings. And, you know, that's men and women writers. And um, he's still being read in schools, partly because he's written short stories. And that's the most <laughs> students seem to get these days. But he changed the way he changed language itself. And that doesn't go away. I mean, that, you know, no amount of dead white males or toxic masculinity, none of that changes it and, or his or his tragedy even. That doesn't change, you know, what he did. You have more insight into some of what he did, like that terrible novel. I think you can see why it's so bad from what was happening to him, but Anyway, no, I think that that his his influence he's been an unde, indelible presence still is in the 21st century. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Thanks to our special guest Mary V. Dearborn, the author of Ernest Hemingway: A Biography. Mary's book is published by Knopf and is available to buy online. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We'll look at the life of Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi war criminal who escaped to Argentina before finally being brought to justice in one of the 20th century's most important trials. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's NZPODZ, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's NZPODZ.com. By giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service, you help us to share this project with more listeners. So please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.